Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. It's a time of calm before the festive whirlwind, offering a perfect moment to pause and focus on self-care. As we enjoy this brief lull in our calendars, devoid of pressing holidays or events, I invite you to embrace this week as an opportunity for rest and rejuvenation. With Hanukkah, Christmas, Kwanzaa, and the beloved Festivus for the rest of us on the horizon, it's crucial to recharge our batteries. So find your peaceful sanctuary, settle in, and let's dive into the enriching conversations I have lined up for you in today's show. Here's what's coming up. Julie Lalonde, a renowned women's rights advocate and public educator, joins me to share her insights on bystander intervention training. Julie's extensive work in creating safer communities and her acclaimed memoir, Resilience is Futile, highlight her dedication to improving the lives of women and girls in Canada. Her expertise, honed through engagements with organizations like the Canadian Armed Forces and L'Oreal Paris, promises to enlighten us on fostering supportive environments. Anne Brody is back, and new releases out of Hollywood seem to be picking up, thankfully. This week, Anne takes a look at the fifth season of Fargo, and with John Hamm, Juno Temple, and Jennifer Jason Lee in the mix, it looks like a season you won't want to miss. Royal Watchers will be thrilled to hear that The Crown is back with its final season, and this timeline takes viewers right up to Prince William marrying Kate Middleton. Next, we explore the world of women's travel with Penny Light, founder of Grit and Grace Adventures. Penny's innovative approach to travel focuses on safe, sustainable, and empowering experiences for women. Her transformative journeys are more than mere trips. They're about connection, respect, and personal growth. Dr. Ariel Delphin, a psychiatrist specializing in women's mental health, joins me to discuss the prevalence and management of anxiety in women. With her extensive experience, including running Ontario's largest perinatal mental health program and co-founding BRIA, Dr. Delphin offers valuable insights into effective strategies for tackling anxiety. Finally, I welcome Holly England, a trailblazing magician who's reshaping the world of illusion and magic. Holly's journey as a woman in a traditionally male-dominated field is not just about dazzling tricks, but also about storytelling, emotion, and breaking barriers. So whether you're seeking insights into women's rights, the latest in entertainment, transformative travel experiences, mental health strategies, or the magic of illusion, What She Said is here to enrich your quiet moments with stories that inspire and captivate. Right here on 105.9 The Region. top interview, I am joined by Julie Lalonde, an internationally recognized women's rights advocate and public educator. Hailing from Northern Ontario and based in Ottawa, Julie has dedicated her career to improving the lives of women and girls in Canada. 
With a BA and MA in Canadian Studies and Women's Studies from Carleton University, Julie's focus has been on the lives of economically disadvantaged elderly women and engaging bystanders to create supportive communities. Her work has been recognized and sought after by clients including the Canadian Armed Forces and L'Oreal Paris. Julie's memoir, Resilience is Futile, The Life and Death and Life of Julie Estelande, has received critical acclaim, and she has been honored with numerous awards for her advocacy work. Today, she's here to discuss bystander intervention training, a crucial aspect of her work in creating safer and more supportive environments for all. Julie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, For our listeners who might not be familiar, can you please explain what bystander intervention training is and its importance in today's society? Yeah, bystanders are anybody who is a witness to something. So a bystander, sometimes people think it has a negative connotation. It doesn't because a bystander can be someone who observes and steps in, or it could be someone who observes and doesn't get involved. So what I focus on in my work is trying to create active bystanders who are people who are witnesses to things, who are adjacent to anything from hate, harassment, discrimination, and who feel kind of a moral implication to get involved, but oftentimes lack the tangible skills of like, how can I make the situation better and not worse? How can I do it in a way in which I'm still keeping myself safe? Um, And so that's what bystander training really is, is getting into the real nitty gritty of you see a situation, you're concerned for someone's safety, but you're also concerned for your own safety. And how do you navigate that um, in a very, very tangible way? And we know that if people committed to intervening every time they witness these things, it would absolutely change the culture that we're living in right now. I have to admit, I feel a little silly, but I've never actually heard of bystander intervention training until recently. And I think it should be something that's standard. We should all know how to do this because I think this is what happens is there's something that we see and we don't know how to react. Uh, it's scary. We've, we, we're, fear, we're fearful we may make it worse. So how did you first become involved in teaching this intervention? And, and what inspired you to focus on this area? I kind of fell into bystander intervention training in particular. Um, so I've spent my entire career working to end gender-based violence in Canada. I worked at a sexual assault center as a counselor. I've created education campaigns. But I'm so passionate about bystander intervention because I know it works. And I know that when you're looking at sexual violence, for example, less than 10% of sexual assaults in Canada are ever reported to police. So even in a world in which, you know, when people say like, oh, well, you know, this is for the legal system to decide and to figure out, I don't have to... No, right? Because 90% of what's going on in our communities, we're going to hear about and not the police. And so I'm a survivor of intimate partner violence. I was stalked by an ex-partner for over a decade. Uh, Even though I am a white woman who was born in Canada, who was educated, I was not helped by the legal system. I wasn't helped by my employer, by my school at the time because I was a student. Um, And it was my community. It was my friends who showed up for me who affirmed that this was not my fault, that I wasn't crazy, that I wasn't asking for it. That is what literally kept me alive. And so I'm so passionate about bystander intervention because I know it works. I've been on the receiving end of that care and that support. And I think it's a really beautiful entryway into these conversations because for so long we spoke to men as potential perpetrators and we spoke to women as potential victims. And in fact, we're all bystanders, right? You could be a survivor of abuse and still witness abuse happening to someone else. You could be, you know, my brother, who's a six foot six white man, um, who could still be witnessing something and be worried that 
I don't want to scare the person I'm trying to help or because I'm a big man is that person think oh I'm gonna I just want to get into a fight with them he's like I don't want to fight people right like we all have, um, you know, I think these concerns about ourselves in terms of our safety, in terms of making it worse. Um, and so it's not that we don't care. It's that we're frozen in fear. Um, we're frozen in uncertainty of like, well, I don't really know what I'm seeing. Is that really not okay? Right. And so I think having the space to just unpack, oh, there are things I can do. I am not powerless. I think changes the whole approach that people have to creating a safer world because it feels realistic to be able to do. And so that's what's kept me in this work so long is like, I see the light bulbs go off for people of like, oh, wait, I've done that before. I just didn't even know that was bipolar intervention. And you're like, yes, it is. Right. And so that's what I think is so exciting is people leave fired up instead of just like depressed about, you know, the statistics and the reality, they feel like they have at least one thing they can do. And that then keeps them motivated to keep fighting. So can you share some examples of how bystander intervention can be implemented in sort of everyday situations? Yeah, so I work with an organization called Right to Be. And we have created this methodology called the five D's, which are five really concrete ways that folks can intervene if they're witnessing any kind of hate or harassment. So um, the one of them, for example, is distract. So things like if you see someone being cornered on the bus and they're clearly uncomfortable approaching that person and saying, hey, I'm so sorry, I'm trying to get off at the Rideau Center. Do you know what stop that is? Uh, do you have the time? You know, as a woman, I'm a very feminine person. So if I see another woman, I'll be like, oh my God, where did you get your bag from? I'm obsessed. I've been looking for one. And the point is to distract the person being harassed so they can focus on you and ignore the person harassing them and then use that as an opportunity to get away, right? So these simple distractions, like just bumping into someone, um, spilling something, stumbling nearby, dropping your bag, making some sort of a commotion is actually like we know we have the research to back up as an effective form of intervention that doesn't put you in harm's way because you don't look like a bystander. You look like someone who just happened to stumble or had a question about the menu at the restaurant, you know? Um, and so it's a really, really non-confrontational way that folks can intervene. Um, and it's a real continuum. So you can do that. You can delegate. So, you know, you see something happen on the bus, go and tell the driver you're at a coffee shop and someone is being disrespectful. You flag a barista down, um, getting someone else to say, hey, you know, you might not be seeing this, but I am and you need to do something. Um, all the way up to direct intervention for folks who do feel comfortable being confrontational, right? Like, so it's a continuum of things that people can do. And that's really my biggest message to people is because, like you said, we don't have this information readily available. Uh, people have this all or nothing attitude of like, I either got to confront a scary stranger or I'm completely right. powerless. And the, it's, that's not true at all. It's a continuum of things. In your experience, then, what are some of those common challenges or misconceptions people have about intervening? What's their biggest fear? Is it physical harm? Yeah. And, and it's so interesting because I could be talking about things at the lowest and like things that you would even consider like a microaggression and people still think, oh my God, if I intervene, I'm going to get murdered. Like people just really go to the extreme. Um, and so, yeah, if you're at a bar and you see two people fighting and smashing chairs over their heads, you getting involved directly, not safe, but you can go and tell a bouncer what's happening. You can go and flag it down to a staff member. That is still bystander intervention. So the biggest fear people have is harm for, to themselves or fear of escalation, especially men 
who know that, you know, that my attempt to intervene might be taken as an invitation to get into a fistfight with someone. Um, and so what's so great about teaching people a full continuum is that they, you can see them, like their shoulders kind of relax a little bit. They're physically like, oh, okay. I teach a bystander intervention program that to children ages three to 10. Like I can teach bystander intervention to a toddler. And that is not to be dismissive of the, you know, brilliance and competency of children. But like, if we can teach this to three-year-olds, there's no reason why grown adults can't also pick up those tools in their own lives. I had no idea you taught this to children. I think this is incredible. I love this. This is exactly what I was saying. I think it should start this early because we oftentimes, it's just a skill we are not taught. Yeah. And I I love that. Yeah. And I I agree. Like to me, bystander intervention skills are up there with knowing CPR, with knowing how to administer naloxone, with knowing how to administer an EpiPen. Like these are skills that we hope we never have to use, but we're very grateful that we have them when we're presented with an emergency situation. Like these are life skills that we all benefit from knowing. Um, And so that's really to me, the kind of like vibe that I bring to it is really thinking instead of being scared and overwhelmed by the severity of what's going on in the world, which, you know, right now there's no shortage of it, right? We're seeing rising rates of anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, sexual violence, transphobia, like you name it, there's so much going on. I know why people feel powerless and paralyzed by the breadth of the problem. But when you realize actually these tiny little things that are very, very passive, that are non-confrontational, are shifting the culture in the right direction, then that's what gets people to pay attention, to get involved, um, and to really kind of challenge themselves to wonder, why am I freezing in this moment? You know, okay, well, clearly it's because I need some more training to figure out how to do this in a way that's safe. We're discussing bystander intervention training with Julie Lalonde. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. We're back with Julie Lalonde. We're discussing bystander intervention. And Julie... You know, your work has reached a really wide audience, including the Canadian Armed Forces, political leaders. How do you tailor your training to suit different groups or organizations? Yeah, that's one of my favorite parts of this job, really, is meeting with people and saying, okay, what are your needs? Like, what are the typical scenarios that you're seeing? What are the typical barriers to intervention? Because they do vary depending on the context. So, you know, my, I do these free public trainings around street harassment. So the concern that people have there is I'm confronting a complete stranger on the train. So my concern is I, they could be volatile. They could be unwell. I don't know what I'm walking into. That's very different from a workplace where you know everyone and your concern might be repercussions, might be that people are going to view you as the troublemaker, that you're going to become the pariah of the office. And so really talking to people to help them understand You know, it's not just that, you know, the bystander effect, like, oh, human beings, we just don't get involved because we assume someone else will. Yeah, that's part of it. But there's so much more to what is holding people back. And that often can be, you know, in a workplace context that you're an intern, you're on contract, you are new to the position, you are the only person of color, you're the only woman. So your ability to intervene feels impossible. It's not, but you do need to know about particular set of skills that you can have 
when you don't have a tremendous amount of power versus if I go into a workplace where I'm training the leadership team, I'm teaching senior management, then we're going to talk about your role as a role model. You have an absolute, absolute obligation to get involved, but you can get involved in a more direct way because you're more protected, right? You run the joint, you pay, you, you know, you sign everyone's paycheck. So you're not as concerned about your job safety as you would be um, as someone who's an intern, for example. And so really getting, having those conversations with people to figure out what are your unique barriers to intervening. Um, and that really helps people feel like, I understand that it's not, it's easier said than done. And it is. You know, I have the really uncomfortable job of going into workplaces and schools and saying to people, I am asking you to walk the harder path. It is so much easier to pretend you didn't see anything and you didn't hear anything and to just keep your head down, right? Um, and so in order to build that trust for people to really trust that I'm, I I'm want to help you, um, it's important for me to really be reflective of what are the challenges that you're experiencing and also the types of situations. You know, maybe it's not as much about sexual violence and harassment in your workplace. Maybe it's more about racism or about ageism, right? The younger staff being mistreated by older staff. Like th these are all real dynamics that happen that are quite unique to each space. Your your memoir uh, has been a source of inspiration for for a lot of, of women. And so you touched on a little bit of your personal story, but how is it influenced your approach to public education and advocacy? I think for me, my story, uh, when I use my story and when I tell my story, I think it drives home for people that, yes, I have 20 years experience of working in this field and I have degrees and all of these things, but also I know what it's like to be on the receiving end of that kind of violence. And I also know what it's like to be on the receiving end of systemic apathy of the police not caring, of my employer not caring. Um, and so I, I know by sharing that I'm building trust with other survivors in the room, with other people who've experienced um, violence in their life. Um, but honestly, I think for me, the biggest link between my personal experience and my professional life is just the motivation to stay in it. Um, this work is really hard. I receive a tremendous amount of backlash. Uh, I took on the Canadian Armed Forces in 2015. And as a result, it created this national conversation about sexual violence in the military, which is great. Um, but it was at great cost to me personally. Um, I told my story exclusively to the CBC and they recommended that I leave the country before the story broke because they couldn't guarantee my safety. I can't speak at public events without a security detail. Like these are real consequences that I face for trying to address gender-based violence in Canada. And so I think if I didn't have that personal experience, I wouldn't have such a fire in me to say, no, this is scary and it's awful, but I have to think about what did 20 year old me need? Who did she need? She needed someone like me now who could fight for her. Um, and so that has think has what it, it's not the reason I got into the work, um, but it's absolutely the reason why I've been in it for as long as I have. And in your opinion, what are sort of the next steps or advancements needed in the field of bystander intervention and women's rights advocacy? I think it's exactly what you said from the top, right? We just need more of it. Um, every time, like the, I know I'm a great facilitator, but I know it's just, it's the, it's the content itself gets people so excited. Um, the free public trainings that I offer, 99% of people, thousands of people have taken that training and 99% of them say um, that they have at least one tool in their toolbox they did not have. And 98.5% of people said they would recommend the training to a friend. People are hungry for this training. They are hungry for this knowledge, for these tools. 
um, because it's the absolute antidote to apathy, right? Um, but so we just need it to be more widespread. We need more schools to be welcoming of myself and my colleagues to come in there and have this conversation with youth. We need workplaces, whether it's unions or uh, management to, you know, create that professional development, create those opportunities, uh, because we know the work is good. We know there's an appetite for it, but it's just getting in the door that is just so difficult. And that's, I think, if we can address that, then I think we're going to make a major amount of headway. So I, I want people listening that, I mean, I am just, I am fascinated with this. So sign me up. I'm totally awesome. going to be doing one of these <laughs> with you, Julie. This is incredible. Uh, but I want, I know people listening are, have got to be interested as well. So where can they find you? Find out more about the bystander intervention, find your book even, just follow along. You share great stuff all the time. Thank you. Yeah. So if you just search for Julie S. Lalonde, um, even on Google, but you'll find me on Instagram, on Twitter, on Blue Sky. Um, I have three more free public trainings available for this year, and they all mark really important dates. So uh, November 25th, which is the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women, I have a free webinar for anyone to join. And then on December 6th, which many of your listeners will know, right, is the anniversary of the Montreal Massacre. And so it's Canada's National Day of Action and Remembrance. And so I'm offering two trainings that day, one in English and one in French. Um, and they're free and they're open to anyone over the age of 12 to attend. Uh, and your cameras and microphones are muted. So they're very, uh, you're never on the spot. You know, you could be multitasking. Um, you could be watching with your, you know, your children, with your spouse, with your whole team, if it's a workplace. Um, but I think it's a great opportunity to mark these important dates um, and to not just, you know, sit in remembrance of women who've lost their lives to violence, but really equip yourself to be able to prevent it from happening to someone else. All right. Incredible. I'm going to put these links up on uh, what she said, talk.com as well, uh, so that people can find them all uh, and, you know, connect with you. So thank you, Julie, for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's time for Saturday Night at the Movies, and after a brief uh, time of not much entertainment, there seems to be a lot of new stuff this weekend, so let's jump into it. Want to start with Fargo? Oh my God, my favorite series along with Twin Peaks, and I do you like it? Well, I have to tell you, so I've actually never watched Fargo, but oh my God, because you always send me, you know, the trailers and, and you know, information prior to these conversations... I'm really interested in this season. Promise me you're going to catch up on the first four episode, uh, series before you watch the fifth. What season is this that we're in? This is season five. Season five. Okay. Uh, so I just want to say what caught my eye was John Hamm, who's in everything, Juno Temple, without the British accent, and I'm fascinated, Jennifer Jason Lee, which was a Gen X kickback for me, and Dave Foley. Yeah. Well, it's... The thing about Fargo is that it is so deep and so it's about dominating life force. It's hard to describe. There's something spiritual about it. 
Um, and it's it's a treat. And you have to promise me that you're going to watch the earlier seasons. So do they all work together, though? Or do, are the seasons, can they be standalone? They do work together in terms of location and sometimes in terms of generations, like it'll skip generations. Sometimes it'll be set in the 1800s, sometimes the 40s, the 20s. And Billy Bob Thornton was in uh, one that is just outstanding, which was present day. Um Anyway, you must catch up with it. So uh, John Hamm is married, was married to Juno Temple's character. She ran away, married a very nice fellow, but she lives on the sly because his thugs are after her. He's the local town sheriff, corrupt as it gets. So uh, she is then saddled with this mother-in-law played by Jennifer Jason Lee in the most spectacular performance of evil. Just blows your mind um and they they battle it out and it's they're trying to dominate not just each other but the in a manner of speaking the universe you'll see what i mean um and they compare her to a tiger and a tiger is dangerous when cornered so she's she's just brilliant at saving herself because she's had to escape so many times um, and it's linked up with uh, Beelzebub and an event that took place in Wales in 1552 and a psychiatric ward. It's just so deep and rich and wonderful. It's just fantastic. It's on FX or stream anytime on City TV. Okay, well, that was my next question. And I, I think I've just decided what my my Christmas holiday binge watch is going to be. I'll watch that yay. on the holidays. I'll, I'll start Fargo. So, uh, okay, let's move on because... Uh, final season i believe of the crown right it is and what a season i mean they're they're going to be you'll see it it covers obviously diana's romance with dodi fayed and then what happened in paris and the repercussions through the royal family and it it works its way up to kate middleton coming in and uh you know the way it's made it's just so sumptuous and so elegant and so beautifully written and directed and acted um it's just it's irresistible now i know you haven't seen the crown no i haven't well that's fine that's <laughs> fine that's all right i'm not a royal watcher so that's okay that's okay i don't have yeah. to watch everything well, the takeaway from this season is honestly my heart was broken watching all of it because i knew what was happening and what was about to happen just so sad it it was it's more effective now than the ones in the past because we don't have any connection to them so that's interesting well i i will say that i did have a deep love as did everybody for diana uh the people's yes. princess so yes. um so that might make me want to watch it a little bit but uh all right what else do we have uh a documentary about the stones oh my god it's so good now nobody knows who brian jones was do you? No, never. I had no idea. Okay. All right. He and Mick Jagger founded the Stones in 62, and he was a musical prodigy. He brought in instruments from all around the world. No one else was doing that. He totally created an English uh, rhythm and blues genre by himself. Jagger was so jealous of him. They were both extremely popular, and the women wanted both of them. He was he was so jealous of Brian Jones's talent and appeal, and his 
you know, his lifestyle. He was very, a lot of big name girlfriends Brian Jones had. Anyway, so it, uh, Nick Bloomfield's doc covers his life, Brian Jones' short life. He died around 26 or 27. He drowned in his pool. Um, drugs. And he's considered the first drug uh, casualty of the 60s. But Mick made life for him very, very hard. And it puts Jagger, I'd kind of forgotten about all this stuff, but it puts Jagger in a new light. Someone who was very insecure back then and would do anything for dominance. You notice a theme? Dominance this week. Um, Anyway, it's uh, Brian Jones had five children by five different women. He just had an extraordinary life, but he was extremely unhappy, not just because of Jagger's picking on him, but because he had a very difficult relationship with his uh, father. So um, it's a a really good documentary. For some reason, it doesn't cover much of Jones's death, because I know there's a lot of controversy around it. Some people think he was murdered, and other people say it was just the drugs and he fell in. So, and oddly enough, the place where it happened, his farm, Cotchford Farm, which had been owned by A.A. Milne, is now a bed and breakfast capitalizing on Jones's death. That feels icky. Yeah, right? Yeah. Anyway, it's a fascinating documentary, The Stones and Brian Jones. So when you find out who he is and... You'll just, your heart will go out to him. Okay. And that's in theaters. Theaters. Okay, excellent. Um, all right. So you've got these. Uh, and we, You'll be back next week. And I feel like there's got to be some holiday stuff coming our way soon. There is holiday stuff coming your way, Candace. Fabulous. That's what you know. I am anxiously waiting that. So, all right. Me too. All right. I love holiday stuff. Wonderful. Thank you, Anne. We'll see you next week. We'll see you next week. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. Where wanderlust is a common call, women are increasingly seeking travel experiences that are not only adventurous, but safe, sustainable, and empowering. In this next interview, I'm joined by Penny Light, the innovative founder of Grit and Grace Adventures, a company dedicated to creating transformative journeys for women. Penny's vision is to offer more than just travel. It's about crafting journeys that inspire, connect, and respect the cultures and environments they explore. With Grit and Grace, women find not just destinations, but experiences that resonate deeply, fostering a sense of community and personal growth. Let's delve into the world of women's travel with Penny and learn how Grit and Grace is changing the landscape of female-led exploration. Welcome to the show, Penny. Oh, thank you for having me. It's such an honor. It's always enjoy speaking with you, Candice. Can you start then by telling me about the inspiration behind Grit and Grace Adventures and then what makes your travel experiences unique for women? Absolutely. So the inspiration behind Grit and Grace Adventures came from actually my stores, Grit and Grace Clothing, over the last few years and connecting and speaking with like-minded women who are looking for friendship. Um 
first off, and then deep and meaningful connections and an opportunity to do that outside, a little bit outside of their comfort zones. Previous to opening Grit and Grace Clothing, I did have a travel company where I was taking women all over the world. Um, and because of COVID, it shut down and then opening a store, like I, that all went on to the back burner. Uh, but more and more as I was connecting with women in my stores and having these wonderful conversations, I felt and was hearing this burning desire to travel with other women and to make those friendships and to make those connections whilst traveling. So in all of those conversations and after about three and a half, almost four years, I thought it's time to relaunch my retreats and rebrand it as Grit and Grace Adventures. What sets us apart, I think, is that I try to, I don't like to call them retreats anymore. Um, I feel like in the retreats, there's a personal growth workshop element. It can get kind of heavy. I like to keep things light. And I feel like that personal growth happens very organically as we're venturing into these unknowns. We're getting a little bit out of our comfort zones. And those meaningful conversations happen while we're caravan in, in an SUV across the Atlas Mountains or sitting on top of a sand dune watching the sunset in the Sahara Desert or we're on safari watching elephants saunter by in those deep, meaningful moments where we're connecting with the world around us, we're also very much connecting with each other. So I feel like that transformation happens very organically in those moments. So let's talk a little bit about some of the adventures you have coming up. Uh, you know, you have a couple imminently and uh, some planned out further down the road. And these are not, I just want to emphasize, yeah. these are not your typical, like, all-inclusive, sit-on-your-butt escapes. No. So... What are some of the adventures coming up? Yeah. So first I'm launching with Morocco, which is where I ended off um, pre-COVID. That was one of the last trips I did. And it's a pretty epic overland experience where we caravan um, along the old Silk Route through the Moroccan uh, cities and countryside through the Atlas Mountains into the Sahara Desert. We do this in luxury SUVs. It's very comfortable. I feel like when we get to a certain age, while we want to adventure and be outside of our comfort zones, we also want to be comfortable while we're outside of our comfort zone. So the accommodations are always wonderful. The transportation is always top notch. So we are in luxury SUVs, but we are caravanning across the country. There's a huge, very important to me is cultural immersion. So we're not going to your typical hot spots along the route. We're really stepping outside of those um, hot spots and getting into really connecting with the locals, really finding out what that culture is all about. Um, on the Morocco trip, for example, we have tea with a traditional Berber family in the middle of the Sahara Desert, which is incredible. So we go into their huts and we sit on the dirt and we have tea with them. We learn how to make food the traditional way that the Berbers do over an open fire um, in the oasis in the middle of the desert. We go to a very traditional carpet weaving place. So we're really outside of those hot spots, tourist points, and really getting into the culture. Um, so we're launching with Morocco. That's in February. Um, after that is Nepal. So we'll be trekking through the Annapurna circuit. I myself did the Everest uh, base camp trek, and it was a life-changing soul experience to be putting one foot in front of the other through the Himalayas and that crisp fresh air. So I want to bring women on to experience that same uh, moment that I had of silence, of connection, um, of putting one foot in front of the other through Nepal. So we'll be doing the Annapurna trek there. Again, lots of cultural immersion. So we'll be staying in traditional tea houses. We'll be mingling with the locals. And then after that, uh, we're looking at Greece in September. And that will be, again, not your typical islands. We're going to the Mamma Mia Islands, which are the lesser known, but where the movie was filmed. Uh, and then after that, Kenya. And Kenya will be a safari slash beach 
adventure. So we'll do half of the trip will be on safari and half of the trip will be on the coast. That's the start. You talked talked a little bit about, you know, how as we get older, we we still don't want to give up that comfort. Yeah, we've earned (laughs) it. Yes, I couldn't agree with you more. So, but how do you balance, you know, that, uh, those elements of adventure and then comfort? Uh, So for Morocco, for example, uh, depending on the time of year that we go, but it can get hot. So, you know, you're out in the Sahara and you're having tea in this like dusty tent and you're sweaty and, you know, even climbing to the top of the highest sand dune. It's not easy, but it's worth it when you get up there to watch the the sunset for sure. And you're huffing and you're puffing and, you know, and even just cultural immersion. Like sometimes Morocco is so, I love Morocco because it's so different. You really feel like you've stepped into another world. When you go to Morocco, it's a different culture, it's a different religion, the colors, the spices, the smells, like all of that. You're very much out of your comfort zone in that everything's just so different. But when you go to sleep at night, your room is air conditioned, your sheets are very clean. And, you know, I've done the, the, the backpacking, you know, thing. And, you know, when I first started my retreats, they were very price sensitive and they were targeting that price sensitive market. Um but I believe we've earned the right to nice sheets and air conditioning at the end of our days and to wash off that dust, so to speak, and sit down and have a nice meal in a lovely dress. <laughs> yeah. What advice would you give to women who, who are listening to this and are considering joining one of your adventures but might be hesitant or new to this type of travel? Um, you know, there's two ways to look at it because you know, I think a lot of women are afraid to travel, especially to places like Morocco or Nepal, where the culture is so different from ours and specifically doing it alone. So this is a great opportunity where you're never alone. I am with you every step of the way. My groups are small, so I cap at 10. There's never more than 10 women on our trips. And I believe that creates a great opportunity for very meaningful conversations and to connect with each other, the camaraderie that's formed in that, that small group size. So you're you're always with somebody, you're never alone, even, but you will be going on your own sort of soul journey. Um, so I think the gr- aspect of group travel from that aspect is a really great safe way for women to start that solo travel or that solo expedition experience. And and I think something that we're talking about a lot more and more in travel and tourism is sort of sustainability and mm-hmm. responsible tourism. How much of that do you take into account as you're planning your trips? Yeah. Every single one of my trips, there's an element uh, where we're giving back to the community in some shape or form, whether we're volunteering um, at an orphanage or we're going in and helping feed students with the Morocco, for example, or proceeds of the trip will go to a cause. So Morocco, for example, uh, some of the proceeds are going to a company called Education for All, and they work with young girls in rural Moroccan areas to bring them in to educate them and go to school, and they were also affected by the earthquake, so that money will help go build, rebuild their dorm rooms for the girls. Um, so I always try to give back to the communities that we're participating in. So what's next then? You've mentioned four great destinations. Do you have others that you're like dream destinations that you're yeah maybe for yourself? <laughs> yeah, uh, truthfully, Jordan, which unfortunately because of the current situation we've had to put on hold, but that is high on my list. Um, and also with the Grit and Grace Adventures, I'm hoping to get out of those typical spots. So uh, Kazakhstan is actually on the list. Turkey is on the list. Um, some of them right now, obviously we're not going to travel to, but hopefully in the future, um, we can, uh, where else I'm looking into central and South America right now. So I'm working with some DMCs to plan some Peruvian trips. Um, Honduras, Rotan would be fun. Um, I've got a long 
list. It's the world is a big, wonderful place. <laughs> well, then people are going to have to keep up with you and what you're planning. <laughs> so where is the best place for them to do that? Yeah, absolutely. They can check out the website. It's gritandgraceadventures.com. The Instagram is the same at gritandgraceadventures. And they can email me anytime at info at gritandgraceadventures.com. And just out of curiosity, how many spots do you have left on that Morocco trip for, you know, if anybody wants to get in? Four. Four, Four. spaces left. All right. Awesome. Yeah. And the first six went in two weeks. So I anticipate we'll be <laughs> sold out very quickly. So that's exciting. Yeah. All right. Incredible. Yeah. Honey, thank you so much thank for joining you. me today. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. <laughs> next interview, I'm joined by Dr. Ariel Delphin, a psychiatrist with over two decades of experience in women's mental health. Dr. Delphin has made significant strides in this field from running Ontario's largest perinatal mental health program to co-founding BRIA, a virtual care platform dedicated to women's mental health issues. With her extensive background, including her book, When Baby Brings the Blues, Solutions for Postpartum Depression, Dr. Delphin brings a wealth of knowledge and insight into the challenges and solutions surrounding women's mental health. Today, we're exploring the prevalence of anxiety in women, its various forms, and the effective strategies available for managing it. Welcome to the show, Ariel. Thanks so much for having me, Candice. It's great to be here with you. So can you start, please, by telling us why women are more likely to experience anxiety compared to men? Absolutely. Um, first of all, thank you so much for having me uh, to talk about this really important topic, because women are, as you just mentioned, at about 24% of the population likely to experience an anxiety disorder versus men at about half of that. Um, it's a great question as to why. Um, we don't have exact reasons, but there are many, many theories. And in psychiatry, we use what's called a biopsychosocial model to look at what the underpinnings and risks of a given disorder may be. So when we think about anxiety, there are several thoughts. One is we think that there's a very strong link between uh, hormones, actually, and anxiety. So, of course, women's hormones, estrogen, progesterone, we know that anxiety rates spike around the period, around pregnancy, postpartum, and in perimenopause. So that's one reason, biologically, hormonal changes. There are also theories that there are different brain structures in women that make them more likely to have anxiety. And then finally, we also think that testosterone is actually protective against anxiety so that men are less likely to develop it. Um, I'm then just rolling we, my eyes at that because of course they are. I know. Lucky <laughs> them, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Please that's okay. Going. That's okay. It's a very valid point. And I'm sure many listeners are also rolling their eyes. Uh, <laughs> in fact, they've studied testosterone and it has very strong anti-anxiety effects. I'm not saying to everybody to go out and get it, but it has been shown to be protective against anxiety. 
Um, when we think psychologically, um, research has shown that the way women respond to stressors is with a lot of rumination and overthinking. We don't fully understand why that is, but that type of approach to stress, i.e. thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking, can can predispose people to developing an anxiety disorder. And then finally, we look at issues that other underpinnings of anxiety, such as abuse and trauma. And women are more than double as likely to have uh, experienced trauma and experience abuse. So when we put together the biological factors, the psychological approach to worry, as well as the underlying stressors and social stressors that many women experience, um, we are we that's probably why there is twice as much anxiety among women versus men and and the link between anxiety and menstrual cycles is is intriguing how mm-hmm. can women track their anxiety in relation to their cycle so i suggest to every woman that i see to track their cycle and track their mood and anxiety along with their cycle there are many good apps um there are many good websites um, there's a great website called the IAPMD, International Association of Premenstrual Mood Disorders, I believe that is. Um, and it, it has some tracking uh, suggestions along there. But I suggest to every woman I see who's still menstruating that she follow along to see if there is, in fact, a spike in anxiety, sometimes depression, sometimes other symptoms too, um, in the two weeks leading up to starting her a menstrual cycle. I think the other one that is intriguing to me is, well, not intriguing, but I hear it a lot is insomnia because it tends to go hand in hand with anxiety. So do you have any sort of suggestions for effective ways to address sleep disturbances? Well, first and foremost, sleep disturbances such as insomnia are a symptom. So I always encourage people, look at the underlying cause. And as you identified, anxiety is a huge underlying cause of sleep problems and insomnia, as is depression, as is other major stresses. So we never want to treat just the symptom because that doesn't usually help. We want to look at what else is going on in this person's life. Is there an underlying mental health problem, such as anxiety or depression? Is there an underlying medical problem? Is it a side effect of medication? Is it due to drinking or other substances that someone is taking? So the key is to dig a little bit deeper first. Then we want to look at a person's habits and help them develop good sleep hygiene, as we call it. So that means going to bed at the same time every night, not looking at screens in the hour or two leading up to bedtime, um, not drinking caffeine late in the day, making sure that you're not exercising late in the day, but exercising earlier in the day, not going to bed on a full stomach. So once someone has looked at the underlying causes, then they can start to look at implementing some of those sleep hygiene mechanisms. And then sometimes when things are really more serious, if they've tried those things, there are certain therapies, something called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia or CBTI that really is very helpful for people, very evidence-based, shows shows a lot of effectiveness. And then in some cases, people may also need medications to help them sleep to really just get them to a better place and get them the much needed rest. Because the thing about insomnia is that it's a vicious cycle. So if you have 
insomnia and you're not sleeping, that's going to worsen some of the underlying issues that you're struggling with. Be that depression, be that anxiety, be that just coping with all the stresses that many people have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. So you really want to intervene to get on top of that insomnia and not have it worsen other things. So tell me quickly then, we do, we, don't, we only have a few seconds left, but I want people to be able to find you. How does Bria help women? So we are a virtual care platform to help women across reproductive life stages, people trying to conceive, pregnant, postpartum, perimenopause. We address all kinds of mental health issues with different kinds of therapy, different kinds of mental health, hormonal assessments, ADHD assessments. The best place to find us is as a starting point online, www.betterbria.com. B-E-T-T-E-R-B-R-I-A dot com on our socials at Better Bria. And um, we're delighted to offer calls to people to learn more about us, to see if our services are suitable for people. But we can really help those struggling with depression and anxiety across all life stages. And we have a sleep coach as well. So I'm really glad we discussed all of these things today. Okay, incredible. Yeah, I mean, mental health is just absolutely huge. I mean, as you know, <laughs> so uh, I hope people will go check out Bria. And thank you so much for joining me. It's very helpful information you shared. Thanks for having me, Candace. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 1059 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 1059 The Region. In today's final interview, I'm thrilled to have Holly England join me. A trailblazer in the realm of illusion and magic, Holly is not just a master magician, she's also a pioneer, challenging norms and breaking barriers in a field traditionally dominated by men. Her performances are not just about tricks and illusions, but also about storytelling, emotion, and connection. She joins me now to share a bit of her journey as a woman in the world of magic, the challenges she's faced, and how she's reshaping the landscape of this fascinating art form. Welcome to what she said, Holly. Hello. Thank you so much. What a wonderful introduction. <laughs> I have to ask, what what initially drew you to magic and how did you begin your career here? Um, well, I had more of an unconventional uh, avenue into magic than maybe some other people, but I started off as a dancer. And uh, then when I uh, was around 18 years old, I did a kind of um, summer contract um, doing like kids shows and things. And I met a magician there. And um, we used to, we then did kind of a a magic show together. Um, But when I actually went to dance college and performing arts college um, a little bit later, my first job out of college was as a dancer in a magic show. Um, And that was um, a magician called Hans Klock who is a Dutch illusionist. I did the European tour after he'd actually just been in Vegas and he did a show with Pamela Anderson there. So I did the tour after that. 
Um, and uh, something that is really amazing about Hans Clark and his shows is that he has these three assistants called the Divas of Magic. And there were these amazing, like strong, powerful women that he kind of illuminates them as as much of a lead as he is kind of thing. And then from there, I ended up being a dancer in um, other magic shows like The Illusionists um, and Masters of Illusion. Um, but with The Illusionists, I kind of went up the ranks. I became a dance captain. Then I became associate producer. I worked in the office for a bit. Then I was resident director and I started directing magic. And just I was just constantly surrounded by magic and like I'd fallen in love with it and seeing all these people that were at the top of their their crafts like these were like FISM winners like the the championship of magic was won by one of these people that I was working with and usually because the woman is you know not to be stereotypical but the one being sawed in half uh what is it like for you in this really male dominated industry yeah because I, I did start off as the one sawn in half so I've seen it kind of from every aspect and you know what like there's there's some other um female magicians that i've met over the years and and some of them have struggled a little bit because you know especially when you're coming from a place like the magic castle like or like such a like kind of uh uh art form that is like so bathed in history um it used to be somewhat of a kind of um old boys club and some of them didn't feel as like invited in uh whereas i have had the opposite uh experience because i was so surrounded by all these amazing magicians and they were the ones encouraging me to actually become a magician um i've only had like the most support and encouragement from from other men in this industry but it did mean that at the beginning when I was get, being offered all these things like how I even got offered champions of magic and when I was getting offered late night magic in, in Vegas I did have a lot of imposter syndrome at the beginning because I'm like am I only in these shows because they need to fill the quota of the female magician you know um so yeah at the beginning I was like oh I'm only here because I'm a woman but then you know after a while you're like and you, you hear from the others like you're so supported and everyone's like reacting really well to what you're doing and like I built up my confidence and so yeah eventually like it's only in the last kind of year maybe year and a half that I've been like no I am I can confidently say I am a magician now <laughs> Absolutely. I love it. So we don't have a lot of time left, but I, I, I want to actually end this with two quick questions. I want to know, do you have any advice for any women listening who would like to get into this? Um, I mean, I'd say just look at, uh, don't just look at other like female magicians, like look at all magicians, because um, if you can find something that really like resonates with you, that's the one way to just, you know, follow that kind of uh, passion and artistry like I'm always someone that works very much from um, I'm inspired by the artistic side of it like I love the aesthetics of things and the storytelling of the feeling of things on stage and the magic effects are the things that almost like you know are uh, enhance that and the opposite way around um so yeah like whatever you're into just follow like um the things that really resonate with you and uh, follow other types of performers and find out what you like about what they do. Um, and then, yeah, just like 
you can find local groups of uh, magicians. Uh, there's there's normally uh, a list on online you can find of all the magic clubs in your area. Like even reach out to like magicians that you maybe see because a lot of them will respond and even like some of them are mentors and um, you can you can learn from them. But there's so many video tutorials. There's such such a mass of information online that you can really like start as soon as you think like oh I want to try this. You can literally go on Google and figure out how to do one effect just by doing that. And go to magic shops as well. Magic shops are the best place because there's people there that can actually, you know, talk to you and show you an effect. Well, you would be a great place to start. So if people want to actually catch one of your shows, uh, where can they do that? I, you have an upcoming show in Toronto, right? Yes, I'm currently on tour with Champions of Magic, which is an amazing, huge a uh, spectacular show. It's got pyrotechnics. It's got fire. It's got death-defying escapes. It's got mind-melting men mentalism. Uh, there's uh, five of us in the show, Champions of Magic, and we're coming to Toronto between Christmas and New Year. So you, I think you can find us at the Meridian Hall. Uh, we'll be there. There's multiple shows a day, I think. <laughs> um, so yeah, we'll be there in the cold, uh, with uh, Timmy Hortons in hand, uh, coming to entertain the people of Toronto. All right, wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today, Holly. It's been a pleasure meeting you. Thank you. This has been fun. <laughs> That's it for what she said this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com and be sure to follow on social at what she said talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. You can also catch me on TikTok at Candace said. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to catch past episodes and extended podcasts. I'll be back next week with another What She Said on 105.9 The Region. Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com.